0: Hello, money makers and money savers. Welcome to the interview series, the business of business. I'm your host, Dustin Dubey, and this is Finance Fundamentals, the show where we learn how to stop working so hard for our money and learn how to make it work harder for you. This podcast is entirely based on my experiences and thoughts. I am not a financial advisor, and the thoughts and expressions you hear on this show are my own and are not reflective of my employers, past or present, nor my guests. I am not liable for investments that you make or strategies that you implement upon listening to my show. Now, back to the show. Hey friends, welcome back to Finance Fundamentals, the interview series, The Business of Business, where I interview unique industry experts and business owners to motivate, educate, and help you to chase your craft. Today I have two guests, and they are both MBA students at Elite MBA Programs. One is at Cornell, the other is at Dartmouth. I really think that we can all learn from them and If any of you have ever considered a top MBA program, we are looking at extreme costs. You have to go into this full time, typically, and you have to justify that debt. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I have Daniel and Patrick with me here today to educate you and hopefully help you to better make your decision. Welcome back to Finance Fundamentals all right today i have daniel who's a second year at dartmouth and we have patrick a first year mba program student at cornell hi daniel hi patrick i appreciate you guys being here with me this evening Virtually, of course, you mm-hmm. know, we have that COVID, but I really do appreciate it. I'd like to have each of you take a second to introduce yourselves. I know that I would appreciate a little bit of background and I think the listeners would as well. So let's start with Patrick, if you can just give the, the listeners a, a brief overview of who you are and where you're coming from.
1: Yeah. So prior to coming to Johnson, I spent about three and a half years in the retail industry, mainly in project management and spent about a year or so doing boutique consulting And my main goals coming into Johnson, doing my MBA was to continue into consulting or possibly pivot into tech. Excellent. How about you, Daniel?
0: Yeah, my name is Daniel.
2: Go to tech right now. I'm a second year. Uh, I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii before coming out here to New England for for school. And I started my career at PwC Boston, uh, went over to EY, did some consulting work there before ultimately getting my MBA. I think with the MBA, I... Definitely thought about consulting again. I think I thought about everything. I think I was interested in uh, investment banking a little bit, general management. I wanted to come here and see kind of what shook out and kind of explore things a little bit more. And I'm ultimately going to uh, Amazon as a senior program manager after talk. Pretty excited about that too.
0: Yeah, congratulations. That's that's huge. I know a lot of the listeners probably aspire to get into something like that. So that's that's definitely exciting. All right. So before we get into the gritty details, can we discuss the process of the MBA application? And maybe what you can do is lay, it, lay the land for the process and talk about the, the exams that go into it, maybe the interviews that go into it and how you narrow down your list of schools. So we'll start with Patrick.
1: Yeah. So MBA admissions is very similar to what you do for undergrad admissions. You have to do your research on schools. You take a standardized test. In this case, you can choose the GMAT or GRE, similar to SAT or ACT. But I would say from there, things get a little bit different because unlike undergrad, where you write about some hard to understand topic, MBA, it's more practical. They're more asking you about your experiences as a working professional as well as, you know, how you fit into their community and what engagement you've had with their students. So unlike just dropping an application with essays, MBAs, they will interview you as part of the admissions process, which means you need to put in a lot of legwork to network with the current students and really learn about the program so you can be knowledgeable when you talk about why you want to go to that school.
2: Yeah, I feel like some things I'd like to like echo from that. I, I, I think that schools are looking for some kind of intangible quality that's kind of hard to get at. And I think schools are looking for different things. Some schools look for maybe put more weight on one category versus another. Uh, their schools might do something different. Some of those differences may be stated on the website. Um, so kind of easy to find but I think like Patrick said one of the best ways to really try to understand a deeper level of what the school is looking for is by going to these schools networking with them you know talking to current students uh, alumni professors whatever it is and you will start to see I think a little bit of themes or traits that alumni have or that they talk about and those are a really good way to show yourself towards that school.
0: Yeah, so I guess to, to build on that, when you started looking at your lists of schools, obviously both of you chose what is considered to be elite or top MBA programs. What kind of drove you in that direction? Obviously, I think some of us can assume it's career pathing, but was it, what, what specifically made you choose Tuck, let's say?
2: Yeah, well, I think the biggest limiting factor, especially in the very beginning, is definitely test score. When I first took the GMAT, I scored like, uh, in like the high 500s. So like really low. And so at that point, it's like, well, I don't, I, and you know, looking at other parts of my resume and everything like that, I really realistically did not have a great chance at top schools. So that's obviously limiting factor number one. I had to work really hard to kind of get my stats somewhere at least close to the average you know if I fell short maybe I can make it up in some other area or maybe I'm like you know whatever it is so that's kind of limiting factor number one to kind of narrow down like the top 50 top 100 schools down to like maybe you know 10 20 ish and then from there I think that's a combination of kind of knowing yourself knowing what you want and also knowing the schools well something that I think I made a mistake with is kind of just not not having a clear idea, I think, of what I wanted and having a superficial understanding of some of the schools that I applied to or like superficial understanding of schools that I didn't apply to, I think kind of the biggest regret I have is actually not applying to some other programs that actually in hindsight, kind of line up with what I would have wanted. So that's kind of how that narrowed down. I think obviously which schools you get in and um, which schools you end up signing with, we can talk about after.
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> and just to give the listeners a baseline, what is a perfect score?
2: A uh, perfect score is going to be an 800. I forget what the percentiles are, but it's pretty low percentage of folks
1: uh, score up that high. Yeah,
2: Patrick, yeah. Uh, maybe you know some.
1: It literally, like if you get a perfect score, you're in the top one percent. It's safe to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like it might be even lower, like like percent of a percent or something like that.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. Patrick, I guess echoing the same question that I just gave Daniel, you know, what, what drove you to Cornell and and obviously your process to narrow down the schools, the applications.
1: Yeah. So I think I worked a little bit differently than Daniel. Um, For me, it was more about what my goal was and what schools would get me there. So I went to a, I would say like the best public state university in the state I went to school in. All right. It's a good school, but when I was in senior year and looking at full-time opportunities, I found consulting was a thing. And I'm like really interested in it. And I really wanted to get into consulting only to find out, you know, that all consulting firms do not recruit at my school because they have target schools that they specifically have a hiring pipeline for. And for me, that's something that I realized too little too late, but I decided then, you know, if I wanted to pivot into consulting in the future, I'd do my research. I look at what schools companies hire from and use that as my baseline. So while there are are a lot of good schools out there, not all schools are given the same amount of attention by your McKinsey's by your Deloitte's. They specifically select the top schools to recruit from. So for me, I knew that I wanted to shoot into like the at least top 20 or so MBA programs. And from there, it was just a matter of, you know, picking the programs that I thought I fit with best culturally that also afforded the widest variety of opportunities that I wanted. So for me, it was number one, having consulting opportunities. And number two,
0: having a network to pivot into another industry, say tech, if consulting doesn't work out. Yeah. Uh, How many programs, if you you remember anyway, did you end up applying to? I ended up applying to six programs total, um, split into
1: two different rounds. So I did four in one round and then two in another round. And interestingly enough, I actually would not have gone to Cornell if it wasn't for COVID. I was ready to just pack my bags, turn in my two weeks notice and go on a three-month vacation after I got my first admissions notice. It was only because COVID happened that I couldn't go
0: on vacation. I decided, why not apply to a few more schools? It's a little bit different of a life experience, I guess. Daniel, do you remember how many schools you applied to? Yeah, I think I applied to like
2: seven or eight all in like one round. And that was like the worst decision ever. And I was all second round. And so I just had a bunch of like, I had all my managers just working, you know, during the holidays for me, just like payback time. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm (laughs) just kidding. Totally kidding. Uh, I was so grateful to them. I, I think I applied to too many schools. It was a little bit too much for me too. I don't think all my, like there was definitely typos in a bunch of my applications and things like that. I think doing the strategy that Patrick did, I would, that's what I would do second time around.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So now I know a lot of our listeners, obviously, this is a financial podcast. So we do have to talk about the numbers. I personally downloaded the sheets that students are paying at Cornell and Tuck this year. The numbers are a little shocking. So I want to talk a little bit about how you justified that ROI. So for the listeners, a full-time MBA Per year at Cornell right now, the tuition is about 71000 Plus or minus some extra costs, you end up close to one hundred. At Tuck, it's actually a bit more. For on-campus students, it's at one twelve, inclusive of room and board and, and housing and, and various other fees. On campus comes to 77 or so. Off campus, 77 plus or minus fees ends up at 117. So, obviously, there's a lot that went into these decisions. This is, I think, for a lot of listeners when they think about an undergraduate, they, you know, it's a X number of years that you're intending to be there, typically four. So you can multiply that by four. Usually, there's a lot of scholarships available for undergraduate. MBA programs are a bit different. So how did we go through the justification of that cost? And I guess we'll start with Daniel this time.
2: Yeah, I would say step number one is definitely outcomes. I think, you know, thinking about it differently, um, especially in a financial sense, is not the best way to think about it. Like, obviously, we're coming here to amplify income. And when, you know, what the typical exit opportunities are, you know, I'm looking at employment reports, I'm looking at average salaries coming out, average bonuses, and, that's kind of the raw numbers, step number one, right? What are the exit options? Oper- what am I going to do after this program? And what is that going to pay me? And how do I back into some of the costs that I have to make with this program? You know, the numbers that they show you there, some of it is fungible, you know, like. For Tuck, for example, they said off-campus housing is more expensive than on-campus housing. I mean, I kind of doubt that. I mean, like, uh, the on-campus housing is expensive, man. <laughs> like, um, but in addition, they're making assumptions about you're going to buy every single book probably don't need to. I'm sorry, professors, you know, (laughs) you uh, don't, you know, housing, whatever else is fungible. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a very hardworking wife who, you know, getting a lot of my food paid for a lot of my fun trips, a lot of my, you know, extracurricular, whatever it is. So that definitely helps to kind of lower that cost in that ROI calculation as well. And one thing that's kind of not immediately apparent is definitely an opportunity cost as well. Average People are, you know, just give or take, it's going to be like $100,000 of lost income opportunity per year. Uh, so that's, you know, $200,000 for that two years that you weren't actively working and earning that money. Sure, you can get some income interning, or you can figure out maybe trading if you want to trade in business school, whatever it is to help boost your income. But really, you have an opportunity to cost. So yeah. altogether, typically, it's like a half a million dollar kind of decision. But you just kind of got to find the ways to cut costs and make sure you get the outcomes that you can get that you, you know can maximize that earning.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for the listeners, the opportunity cost is as simple as if you do not partake or do something, the cost of of foregoing that. So, I guess, you know, Daniel, you, you talk a little bit about exit opportunities that sort of drove you to Tuck and and the ROI that goes into that. What are typical exit opportunities that people are getting at Tuck? I think we've heard about tech and consulting, but do people come in with other aspirations?
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think generally the outcomes that I'm, um, obviously, I I don't know uh, Johnson all too well, but most of the exit opportunities that are going to be at Tuck are going to be at Johnson. They're going to be at many of these top business schools, especially the most popular and main ones. I break down exit opportunities kind of in two ways. I think the first way we can think about it is a professional services firm. So this is where you're solving someone else's problem. Uh, Consulting, investment banking are the first two main examples of that. The second type of job is where you're actually working at a company like a Google or a Walmart, and you're actually helping, you're solving your company's problems. And so I think that's kind of the first bifurcation, right? In the investment bank, I mean, the professional services field, I would say the most popular among MBAs right now is definitely consulting. Consulting pays a hell of a lot of money. It offers lots of different skill set building, lots of different exposures to industries and problems with the thought that you're going to work very, very hard in consulting and professional services, but you'll get paid very well and you'll be able to amplify your exit opportunities later on. It's a similar thinking to investment banking. Uh, You get paid a lot, work very hard. There are exit opportunities. On the other side, when we go to like, you know, working within companies, I think you have a lot of really interesting problems that you're solving. And if you feel passionate about a certain industry as well, that's when you might think about doing this. You don't work as hard for sure as the professional services, but your compensation is also not as direct. Lots of compensation is tied into stocks. And, you know, if the stock does well, then maybe you can make you know, X amount of money, whatever it is. So lots of compensation is tied and essentially they're just trying to align your incentives. Um, You're a lot more, you have to be a lot more loyal to the firm in that situation, to your company where you're really working for it. So those are kind of the main things right off the bat that the top MBA programs can offer you. But there are definitely lots of folks who come in with very different aspirations that might be not as common. I think what we're seeing a lot is lots of people coming in and wanting to make a social impact somehow of starting to look broader than just for-profit enterprises and the problems that ask the question, you know, like we're moving away from just asking the question, how do we make more profits? Some, a lot of folks are coming to MBA programs want to actually ask the question, how do we lower carbon, our carbon footprint? How do we make our society more uh, equitable? How do we help world hunger, whatever it is they're passionate about? and lots of the skill sets are the same uh in an MBA program they teach you how to you know take in all these different information you know make a managerial plan start to plan out you know what to do next how to solve a problem how to execute upon something so you can see how it's kind of similar i would say that's one of the cooler kind of not so popular um MBA routes uh and there're definitely others like um, Private equity as well. Private equity, venture capital. These are a little bit more niche. They pay a lot more. They pay a lot. They, they, they're they're great problem solving places. They pay a lot of money. Uh, but typically, they require a certain type of background. My friend, who's you know really gunning for VC, he's a PhD. He's done a ton of like medical stuff. He's super niche, and like all these venture capital firms who invest in healthcare, healthcare startups, or whatever it is, would really like his skill set. So he's kind of you know an example of someone who may be on a separate path completely, but still very interesting, very high paid. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. All right, Patrick, so echoing on what Daniel said, obviously it sounds like from talking to you a little bit ahead of time that your analysis to go into a program was maybe a little more in depth. So can you talk me through that?
1: Yeah, so for me... I will say that pre MBA, I was making I'd say okay money, but I felt like my career trajectory just wasn't going at the rate I think I could or want it to. I'll say I was earning 78,000 annual salary, you know no bonuses or anything like that. So, and I did the math and I sat down and just said, you know if I continued down this path with you know maybe a decent bump every three, four years or so, what would my income look like all the way up until, let's say 40s or 50s? And then I just modeled out, you know, well, what if I took the next two years off, didn't have any income, that's the opportunity cost of going to school. But then immediately after that, in the third year, I started doing a post MBA job, I'm using the average I get from the employment report that, you know, Johnson puts out saying, average, a graduate earns about 130k, not including stocks or other bonuses. And from there, I just modeled out saying, okay, at what point do I break even, right? This is the kind of stuff that Ironically, they teach you in an MBA, but you probably needed it before you decided to go to an MBA. And ultimately the numbers came out to the fact that I would be better off not doing an MBA if I decided to retire at age 37 and call it quits. But every year after year 37, you know, age 37, I should say, I will out earn myself, you know, significantly. To the point that if I retire at 45, you know, because I really don't want to work that old until I'm that old, I would have out earned by half a million dollars. And you can imagine how much that gap would just increase if I actually work until the average retiring age. So for me, uh, once I took that into consideration, it really was a no-brainer decision. But I would say that for me in my circumstance, I had, I would say, a below average income for MBA standards. Some people going to MBA, they're already earning six-figure salaries. And in that case, it's much harder for them to walk away from it because the opportunity cost is so high. So me deciding to go to an MBA, I would say at four years of work experience, Yeah, I think that was really crucial for me because I don't know if I would have made the same decision if I was looking with you know two or three years down the line.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I know I, I'm a couple of years older than you, Patrick, and I think a lot of people in my boat are kind of... In that iffy stage where it's it, it could go either way, right? And, and obviously there is some opportunity cost of not making an income. And I think that also if if you're if you're locked down, right? If you have assets, you bought a house, maybe you are have you know you're stuck to as tied to a specific zip code as well. That also tends to be difficult. I know from talking to Daniel in the past. Some people have children and they have to justify leaving their children for that time. And there's a lot of intangibles that go into this as well. So yeah, I appreciate that perspective. But one thing I would like to hear too, is I know you guys talk a lot about the income earning potential. I think a lot of times people, when they think about these top MBAs, they're also thinking about the brand recognition and the reputation. So what about the network? How, does, how do you think that that may benefit your career or will it at all? Maybe that's an old school way of thinking and it might not be as beneficial. We'll start with Pat. Yeah. In regards to networking, I'm currently a first year. I
1: haven't had too much experience, you know, networking, but from the research that I've done and what people tell me, you know, it really is helpful to have that network out there for you, especially at these top companies. I mean, MBA Circle, as much as we think that we go to a lot of diverse industry or companies, it's actually a fairly small world. You can name any top company and you'll probably have an alum from every single top program there. And I think that's something that I didn't have prior to coming to Johnson. I went to a really good state school, but pretty much everyone who graduated stayed within that state or the neighboring state. So if I wanted to go, to example, for New York City or to Seattle, I probably would not have had a network I could you know, reach out to. Whereas now at Johnson, I'm fairly certain that no matter where I go, I'm going to be able to reach out to someone on LinkedIn at least, and at least have
0: that sort of resource waiting for me. And Patrick, I know that you had noted you did go to school for consulting. I know you're still a first year. Has has that wavered at all? Are you still going down that trajectory? Is that what you would like to ultimately do? So
1: for me, I felt like with my profile and my background, consulting is the natural next step and the easiest to continue but I actually have always wanted to pivot into tech. I just feel like it's a better cultural fit for me, uh, but I just never felt like I had the opportunity to, given how I didn't study engineering or computer science in undergrad. But surprisingly, I actually did not get as many consulting interview opportunities as I thought I would, but I got a lot of tech interviews and uh, actually like Daniel, I am going to Amazon, uh, Nice. this for internship, not full-time <laughs> though, but I'll be at yeah. inter- Amazon for the summer.
2: Nice. What position role do you know? Uh,
1: I'm going to be doing the RLDP, the retail leadership oh, development nice. program. Yeah, um, for sure. I don't know if I'm going to, what role I'm going to be doing in the program yet. They'll yeah. tell me about a month before it starts. That's a
2: great program. Congrats.
0: Thank you. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks, finance fundamentals. We're making connections all across <laughs> the world here. And, and so... One thing that I want to hear too, Daniel, your perspective is I know you talked to me a little bit about, you know, we don't have to echo too much on the network, but as far as the opportunities and the events, and I know that maybe Patrick's experience has been a bit different in a COVID world, but as you were a first year student, or at least for most of your first year, you did have a normal experience. So talk about that and the opportunity to maybe really build these direct connections with your classmates who have a variety of backgrounds.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think the in-person experience, especially at a place like Tuck, and I imagine a place like Johnson as well, is definitely really important. Just being a little bit more isolated than your uh, New York City's, Boston's of the world. And so I have to say that I've been missing it a lot. But what kind of happened in the first year was essentially... um, You get in and they do actually a lot of programming, even before you decide to come, you start meeting like who your classmates are going to be. I quickly found that yeah, I got into two programs and I went to these two places and I I could quickly feel a distinction between the type of folks that I was hanging out with. It wasn't a terribly bad decision. It was definitely just all about preference. Like I just felt like I fit in better with the people that talk. Um, And so that's... A big part of Tuck especially and the value proposition is just being in this small, tight-knit community in the middle of the woods in nowhere and all you guys are doing are just talking about business and like, yeah, like it's kind of fun, but like there's also a lot of these ancillary events and, and fun times that happen. Before coming to Tuck, I went to Peru with a bunch of uh, my soon-to-be classmates. We hiked uh, Machu Picchu and so that was kind of, was going to be indicative of the MBA experience. Uh, the top tier MBA experience is typically one that is filled with international travel. Um, you go with the school, you go for academic reasons, you go for personal reasons. And so that was kind of a lot of my, my first year, what it was like pre-COVID. Um, we, I did Peru, I did Montreal, a few of my friends did a bunch of places in Europe. And so... These experiences really help you to bond with your classmates like you were talking about. And, and it just does kind of get to this aspect of network as well. The people that you're going to be surrounded by are 100% part of the learning experience and the growth that you, that you come to business school for. They, many of them are older, younger from various different uh, industries and experiences, lived experiences, their ideas of what a world should be, ideas of politics, ideas on leadership, all these things kind of differ and everyone's kind of really eclectic and has their own strengths and weaknesses that they bring to the table, uh, just like you are. And contributing, learning from each other, and and working towards something together. It's this two-year boot camp type of thing where you have fun experiences, you work hard, you go through ups and downs with that group of people, and you're going to have this network going forward now. I am very confident with the guys that I live with. I'm confident that I'm going to graduate here, and I'm going to have these guys, and these guys are going to have my back for whatever comes forward. You know, if I need to change jobs through, you know, someone else's A company, I'm sure I'll have like a reference there. I'm sure it's a warm type of uh, introduction when I ask for that reference or, or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Like we used to do this together. We used to hang out, you know, we used to get six feet of snow in the middle of the woods and go snowboarding together. So like, so that's definitely part of it. And I think as alumni who graduate, they look back and, you know, fondly remember their times as well. So in many ways, they are very incentivized to Keep the program, keep the network strong. You know, give money back, uh, help students, whatever it is. And so that's kind of how those network dynamics play out, right? Um, these are folks that used to be in your position. They want to help you succeed. They're at great companies now, doing amazing things, and you're looking towards them for advice, for what to do next, uh, ideas on leadership, ideas on problem solving, whatever it is. And they help you. And when you get to that position, um, you know, I'm sure Patrick, you know, you well be helping the folks that are currently in school or, you know, younger than us or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. I, I, I have a feeling there's going to be a LinkedIn friend request going out here pretty soon between the two of you. Uh, <laughs> so, so Patrick, curious what your perspective is because of a COVID world, how the, the network is maybe a bit dampened and maybe how the school is fighting that and still trying to create a bit of a community with you. And, and your classmates?
1: Yeah, so uh, definitely, like you mentioned, COVID has put a dampener on, you know, what would normally would be a very outgoing social experience, but we have tried our best to kind of mitigate it. The school does what it's allowed to do. They put on, you know, virtual happy hours. They try to engage us with other events or be accessible, you know, during non-working hours as well. They just try to do a lot of things but they're limited in what they can do. It's really up to us as students as, you know, first years and second years to make things happen. And I think people kind of came in with the expectation of, okay, this is not a normal year and we have to put in more work if you want to get this experience and if you want to build these relationships. So I remember when I first arrived in Ithaca, you know, everyone was super willing to just hang out, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, social distancing but we're talking about, you know, if you just wanted to go grab lunch, people would be sitting in a large circle, you know, six feet apart for 10 people, possibly just to get to know each other. And this is for everything. Ultimately, I think this really did help. Typically at MBAs, you experience clicks or social groups forming. I think COVID just really helped cement that as far as requiring us to be in smaller groups. We host, you know, get togethers every so often, every other night. With parties, we try to adhere as much as we can to the policies. <laughs> but it is taking it, you know, a lot of times just doing what you can with what you have. So house parties might not get to the scale we would like it to, but we still try to have them as much as possible.
0: Nice. Yeah, you gotta have fun too. And one thing I do I think is great about the programs too is you're going as an older individual. You maybe have hmm. figured out a little bit of your who you are, your your interests professionally hmm. in the working world, and now you're returning. Okay, so, Pat, I'd like to hear your perspective too on, I, I know we talked about a variety of backgrounds. How large is the class size at Johnson? And, I, I, you know, you probably have gotten a sense, are they from all over the world? What, what are their professional backgrounds? Do you have, obviously, probably some consultants like yourself, but maybe people that were teachers or people looking for career shifts? Yeah. So at Johnson, we are a little over 290, I believe,
1: but still under 300. And I would say that the majority of people are those who come from the working world, whether they're in finance or consulting or just working in the corporate world. But about 20% or so are people who come from very unique backgrounds, you know, whether it was military, Teach for America, or even drama and theater. You know, these are some backgrounds that I can think of off my head. And... These are the ones who really are looking to get an MBA to really pivot their careers in a whole new direction. And as far as international breakdown, I'd say, at Johnson, I'd, about a third of our class are international, wow. which is surprising given how you
0: know you think COVID would reduce that amount. Anyone notable that you've come into contact with?
1: Uh, man, notable that I've come into contact with. There's a guy who diffused bombs for a living before wow. a MBA.
0: So, okay, definitely the most interesting story when doing yeah. icebreakers. Uh, yeah, I would say. <laughs> what did you do? I, I was a consultant. Well, I did fuse bumps. All right, Dan, we'll pass the same question over to you. Demographics of of the people at Tuck, and you know, what are their backgrounds? Where are they coming from?
2: Yeah. So backgrounds. I mean, I, I echo what Patrick is saying, right? Like, there's um tons of folks from just all the all different places. I mean, I think Tuck especially likes folks. uh, uh, There's a lot of military folks. There's uh, a decent amount of consultant, decent amount of finance folks, typical of all schools, uh, lots of engineers and nonprofit folks that are looking to pivot or maybe gain a little bit more business skills. And I kind of want to harp on that a little bit more. And we were talking about the ROI and this is not something that we actually quantified or talked about, but the ability to pivot uh, both role and industry is hard to quantify but very important I wasn't extremely happy with the, the role and the industries that I was working on prior to tuck very happy about both of those things that I'm pivoting towards now and so hard to quantify there but that's definitely one of the biggest you know positive ROI factors when thinking about this and that's what everyone's thinking about and and looking at the diverse amount of people coming in from all these different backgrounds shows that, right? They're all coming in here to pivot into X, Y, Z, certain roles after that. And so, you know, that's a really big part of the MBA experience that Pivot you're talking about. You know, lots of international folks also come I think, you know, Patrick was talking about it. Um, I think our number is, I, everyone's number is around, you know, my Oz is 37, but it's like including X, Y, Z and like, I don't know, metric is a little bit weird, but talk is definitely, I think, a little bit harder to get to. So it's, I don't know, it, it's hard to attract lots of folks to the middle of nowhere uh, in the woods, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, so it's pretty exciting to still see that diversity of folks coming from Africa, coming from middle parts of, you know, weird parts of the world, wherever, having done amazing things problem solve, you know, in their industry or made a huge impact uh, in education, whatever it is, all these folks are coming to, you know, these programs and yeah, you know, have very diverse backgrounds.
0: That's awesome. That's great. So, We've talked a lot about the cost. I want to dive into the fact that not, not all debt is bad. I think mm-hmm. that we oftentimes as a, as a culture, or really even in our, our American culture, we think of debt as a bad thing. And one thing that I want to make sure the listeners remember is, like I said before, something like a mortgage builds your equity and, and is not necessarily a bad debt. If we look at something like an education The earnings potential is really how we want to spin this and and think about the ROI that, that these gentlemen have discussed. So let's talk about prospective students that want to jump into an MBA program and and not just any MBA program. And maybe we can pause here for a second and go into the distinctions between a full-time and part-time, or I know there's two plus two programs. If you want to take a moment to reflect on those, and then we can talk about some advice for future, for future students. And we'll start with Pat this time around.
1: Yeah. So there are definitely a variety of MBA programs out there. They're trying to, a lot of schools are trying to offer different programs to fit different people. But I think the, best distinction you can make is probably looking at it in two dimensions. One is the ranking of the program and the second is the format. So uh, ranking wise, I mentioned this previously, but certain companies recruit from certain schools, right? If you have a goal, such as you wanna do venture capital or you wanna do management consulting, you need to get in certain caliber of school. It's just as simple as that because those opportunities don't exist at schools who aren't at a certain rank. In addition to that though, there's also the format. So, full-time two-year MBA programs are best suited to let people pivot, whether it's industry, whether it's function, whether it's both. Uh, two-year MBAs, you have the internship in between the first year and the second year, and that really helps people with that transition. Whereas a lot of other programs, for example, one-year MBAs, right, they do not have that ability because they essentially finish the entire coursework and then they're looking for full-time opportunity. And similar with evening MBAs or all those alternative programs, they might not have access to recruiting on campus because those you know, pipelines are reserved for the full-time MBAs. So when people typically ask me like, you know, should I go for a part-time or a full-time? I ask them, are you trying to continue your trajectory or change it altogether? If you're already at a great company and in the industry you want, then you can get away with a one-year MBA or part-time MBA just to continue and accelerate. But if you need to take time to change direction, then it's full-time MBA is the way to go. Yeah,
0: that's that's a great perspective. All right, Dan, how about you? You want to give your perspective on that? No,
2: I mean, I agree with how Patrick laid it out there. I guess I would, I would spend some time looking at what programs recruit where. I think it's hard to really tell, you know, there are just some connections where, you know, I think, Looking at schools like University of Washington, Foster or Carlson University of Minnesota, I believe Carlson, they send one or two folks to uh, you know MBB or, or BCG a year. You know, BCG is one of these uh, very elite consulting firms, that everyone wants to go work for. It's very very difficult to get into, and somehow you know, and, and these schools, University of Washington, University of uh, Minnesota. They aren't the highest ranked schools, but they're still sending, you know, one or two folks there a year. So for those one or two folks, that's some an amazing decision. Maybe, you know, they wanted to stay in Minnesota or wanted to stay in Washington area and they were able to kind of still get a really great school a really, you know, that fit their need and also get a really top tier job. But obviously the numbers are very difficult. The odds are not in your favor in that situation. If you're trying to make sure that you land a XYZ job, you have to go for the higher ranked places. If you're a little bit more open, a little bit more fluid, you might be able to you know, think about expanding your choice of school. You know, um, maybe you're going in with a full ride for whatever reason, your company's paying for it or you know, whatever circumstances you have to go stay in that region. You know, you mentioned this, Dustin, earlier. I, I I would look at those as well. I would consider those, especially if you can afford to, especially if you are flexible with what outcomes you may get after the MBA. And And that's really what, I I call like kind of a paradox of these top schools, right? Especially when you have to pay full sticker price, you have to get one of these uh, high paying jobs. And these high paying jobs come with sacrifices to work-life balance or, you know, whatever it is, you have to live in, you know, only these few cities. You can't live somewhere else if you wanted to, whatever it is, they come with trade-offs. And so that's really kind of like a, a, a conundrum there, right? You're paying all this money and now you have to get a really high paying job versus maybe if you, took a full ride, you could, you know, then take something more interesting that paid a little bit less, maybe a little bit harder to find a little bit, you know, the path less traveled, you may not earn as much as the normal, you know, consulting path or, you know, tech, investment banking path. But, you know, it's an interesting opportunity. So I definitely, you know, think about that, Mm -hmm. and, and have, you know, those, those considerations and keep that in mind as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to also think about the trade-off, like you're talking about, as you exit one of these programs, <laughs> the, the party's just getting started. Now you got to pay off that debt. And mm. and typically you've landed a job at, a, at hopefully a reputable company and and they have demands. They want to mm-hmm. get their ROI on you. Exactly. You know, they're, yeah. they're not going to give you $150,000 salary without some expectations. So, you know, just a, a reminder for the listeners, unless you're willing to work hard, not not the program for you. Okay, so I, we've talked about a ton. I, I guess if you could give a couple of tips, maybe your top three tips to prospective students that are going to go into a full time MBA at a let's say top twenty, top fifteen program. We'll start with uh, we'll start with Daniel.
2: Sure. I think tip number one. I think this is the most important one, in my opinion. But I would say to kind of you know actually a larger proportion of the MBA than you think is actually personal and very much about leadership and very much about the type of leader you want to become, the type of person you want to become after, and really reflecting upon that and taking the time to work on habits, work on, you know, what are you doing wrong, work build, you know, really good habits uh, and a good foundation for your life going forward. I, I would spend some time thinking about that. I, I wish I spent more time up front before the MBA thinking about that, reflecting on, you know, the type of person I want to be and who I want to come out with. And what do I really want to take advantage of in this two years, in order to be that person. You know, I think the second tip is I think to follow your gut kind of. I, I don't know how to say this, but like, there are going to be pros and cons of all these different career paths, and you're going to be in love with one company today, and you're going to be in love with the company tomorrow. You know, you're like, 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 there's, there's all these things out there, there's all these interesting paths out there. Um, you know, Follow your gut with what feels right, even if it's not the most tried and true path, even if it's not what your friends are doing, whatever it is. This is your opportunity. This is your outcomes. Uh, make sure that you feel good about what you're going to be doing after. And number three, I think some people definitely need to hear this, but, uh, you know, you, you don't need to try like, like that in, in a certain way. We don't need to try super hard in the NBA. Um, A lot of this is kind of these, you know, especially when it comes to academics, I think, like, learn for the sake of learning, build, you know, like, go through these activities for the sake of becoming a better leader, becoming a better person, whatever it is, everyone's here to kind of help you out, you have this safe space for these two years, you know, have some fun, have some do things you never tried before, step outside your comfort zone, have some fun, break some rules a little bit, Um, really, you know, not anything crazy, but, um, you know, really, explore uh this is kind of the last time to do that and after this
1: yeah it's time to work hard
0: yep absolutely all right Patrick let's toss it on to you same question
1: yeah so I think my first suggestion is piggybacking off what Daniel said his last point which is at an MBA you really want to take advantage of the opportunity you have and academics is probably not you know your priority I think a lot of people, they kind of have a hard time adjusting to this. People who typically get into top MBA programs, we all have a bit of a nerdy streak to our personalities. That's how we you know, were able to test so high to get into these programs to begin with. But no one's going to remember 10 years from now, you know, if you were on the Dean's list or if you somehow failed your accounting course, no one's going to remember those details. Instead, people are going to remember the things you did, the interactions you've had. And you know if you were able to build any meaningful relationships with the people at the program. So really take advantage of what you have. Maybe understand academics is important, but it's not the reason why we all decided to commit, you know, six figures of tuition and two years of our time. And the second bit of advice I would say is don't get too caught up and fall in love with things that you hear about or read about when you're doing research. I mean, we've all been there we've all been on social media sites we've all seen the glamorous jobs and the postings we have seen when people talk about you know the bonuses or the fancy getaways that's the stuff that you kind of fall in love with and romanticize before mba but once you're here you kind of realize like this is it like this is you're actually like one step away from landing these opportunities so you shouldn't treat it so much as you know a big deal and just treat it like how you would normally, right? Like, yeah, it's a really big deal to interview with McKinsey, for example, but at the end of the day, they're just your classmates. They're just people like you and you're not going to, it's not out in the world if you don't get your opportunity that you came in here for, right? There's plenty of opportunities. I know it's especially rough for people who might not have gotten what they came in here for, but you know, trust the process. You're going to eventually come out with a great opportunity as long as you listen to the advice of the second years above you, for example
0: yeah that's great. I know I mean, talking to both of you, I know that your trajectories have definitely changed since you've entered your programs. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that it's actually great you guys are both ending up at Amazon. those phenomenal job opportunities available to you. but if I asked you when you entered the program, I don't think you would have been as psyched about it. so you know, trusting the process. And I think telling people they don't need the good grades. Maybe you just swayed a few listeners to, to consider the program. So, all right. <laughs> so we're going to play a little bit of a game. I am going to toss some at you or statements or words, and you are going to give me a bullish or bearish response. I'm going to give you about two seconds. If you do not know enough about the topic, you can pass, but don't pass too many times. We're just having fun. Okay. Bitcoin, Dan.
2: Short term, uh, bearish, uh, long term though, uh, bullish.
1: Okay, that, yeah, I think I'm bearish, but not just uh, short term, I think long term as well. I really think that the value isn't there yet, and it's still way too speculative. Great,
0: all right, let's uh, let's talk about Robinhood. Dan,
2: I am going to uh, like. Robinhood is a platform, great. I think it's great. Um, what they did recently, um, uh, slightly bad press. Uh, definitely not good communication. Definitely not, you know, um, the best moves uh, as a whole.
1: Pat, I'm actually going to go and say I'm fairly bullish about it. I mean, obviously they got bad publicity, but, you know, the old adage is any publicity is good publicity. So they've broken into the mainstream attention. And gotten the spotlight on them. So you know, after they weather the storm, I think it's gonna be good
0: for them. It's a great point. Yeah, they actually ended up getting a lot of downloads the week following. So eh, good point, like, like, good point. okay, Tesla.
1: I'm gonna go bullish, you know. As someone who has a former Tesla engineer as a roommate, he is holding on to his stock. And I got I kind of have to read into that and say, you know, there's probably a reason why.
2: Yeah. I'm going to say bullish as well, for sure. Um, I don't think we're anywhere close to realizing the potential of uh, electric vehicles and self-driving cars. There are definitely going to be more competitors coming in, but that does not mean that I'm not bullish on Tesla.
0: Okay, TikTok.
2: Are they getting acquired? Is that, is that happening?
0: There's been a lot of speculation, but overall?
2: I Yeah, I mean, by itself, um, I'm too old. So I don't know. I, I, I would say... I'm bearish, but I think that's just me being old. I, yeah, I just don't know what the kids are into these days.
0: Patrick? I
1: mean, same boat as far as I don't know what kids are into these days. But if you look at history, if it's something that the kids are all into and you're too old to realize it, typically yeah. I think it's a good thing for it. So it's it now.
0: And I think I'll be bullish. I am very bullish on it. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a new medium. All right, Disney. This, let's, let's actually talk about Disney specifically in the entertainment industry. So Disney Plus. I'm
1: absolutely bullish on Disney Plus. I mean, I
0: think COVID arriving
1: at the time it did, aligning with Disney Plus really just gave it you know immediate success. They might have had like a ramp up period or they might have thought it'd be like, it takes some time to acquire the user base, but everyone being locked indoors, unable to go outside and wanting something to do, really help their numbers and i think they're just gonna keep on writing that
2: yeah i think um disney plus is good disney plus is 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 is, you know doing really well now bullish definitely but disney corporation i think is better and man like if you think about everything they're in how they're aligning the ecosystem their strategies yeah 100% bullish on
0: them yeah see if this is the stuff you like to talk about the MBA program could be good for you uh okay Here's a good one. airline stocks in 2022. So
1: if we're talking 2022 right now, like if I had disposable income and not crippling amount of debt, <laughs> I would definitely want to buy in and hold, given how we could probably see a boom within the next year or two. If the vaccine rolls out are good and travel kind of returns to normal. I think, you know, 2022... I would be optimistic.
2: Yeah. You know, I think that airline stocks are obviously one of these like first order effects of returning from COVID, just like hotel stocks. So, I mean, yeah, they're going to receive a boost, but I've never liked the airline companies. And and I don't think that uh, the the industry is very, very low margin. It is a tough industry in terms of management. I'm not too sure how much innovation is going on in there. Uh, Long term, I think they're in for disruption, but I mean, 2022, you know, Everyone's returning. Everyone wants to have the time of their lives again. Uh, yeah, definitely going to receive a boost from that.
0: And we'll see what the ticket prices look like. Right. Uh, fun, fun fact, American Airlines is actually selling their wine stock online. So if you want some cheap wine, they're, uh, they're selling <laughs> it. You can actually buy it with Miles too. Uh, okay, let's talk MBA programs 10 years from today. And, and a little context on this one. Elon Musk said that he does not want to hire MBAs at Tesla. So are you still bullish on MBAs in 2031?
2: Yeah. I think there's gonna be kind of a bifurcation in terms of like there's gonna be more strict kind of gaps in that ranking system, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, he's he's not gonna hire anyone from, from an MBA program, but I'm sure if we looked at his board, I'm sure there's a ton of folks that are from Harvard business school, <laughs> then, I mean, yeah, you can say that, but like you're like, using them. So, <laughs> yeah. cool. um, but, but, but that gets to the point of like, you know, it's like the Harvard business school degrees are still going to be really amazing. Uh, these top tier MBAs, you know, top, you know, whatever number it is, there's, there might be a little bit more of the lower end degrees having, you know, losing a little bit of their, their value.
1: Yep. Yeah. I definitely agree that we're going to see a shift where people are not going to all say an MBA is a good idea that, The top MBA programs, they're still going to have their value. You can't touch what they're doing, but a lot of lower ranked programs, they're just not going to have the people coming in to sustain the programs, given how we're moving away from, you know, full in-person education. It might be online education, it might be specialized one-year degrees, but I think a lot of the lower ranked MBAs aren't
0: going to survive uh, into 2030s. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation on what education will look like in the future. And obviously, there's a lot of ideas floating out there. But yeah, you know, the, the, I, I am curious to see how higher ed specifically is impacted. All right, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough. Final closing words. If You wanted to leave the audience with one thing to think about if they're talking about MBAs with their friends. We'll start with Dan.
2: I would just say kind of enjoy the process. Like if you're applying now, I, you know, I know a few guys applying now as well. And, you know, guys and girls, um, they are stressing out about, you know, all these applications and, you know, thinking about things like application consultants that cost a boatload of money, um, you know, they're just really freaking out and it's, it's a tough time. And I remember freaking out myself Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I would say try your best to kind of just relax a little bit more. It might help you write your essays a little bit better (laughs) and maybe interview better. I don't know.
1: Patrick. Yeah. So for me, I would like to just say, you know, for a lot of people, you might be on the fence setting, you know, is an MBA program for me. You might have an image of like a stereotypical Wolf of Wall Street kind of guy, or a super type A outgoing extrovert. And I would just like to say that MBA programs, if you have like 200, 300 plus people here, you're going to find people of all walks of life. You're going to have introverts. You're going to have extroverts. You're going to have people who want to be high and just do everything to enjoy themselves. And you're going to have bookworms. You're just going to have everyone. And there's probably going to be a circle for you. So, you know, well, I think there's definitely a larger number of type A extroverts. Don't think that, you know, that's the entire program and everyone's the same. You are going to find a place to belong. Excellent advice.
0: Gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. And I hope that you will join us and support the show along the way. And uh, when you guys get those, those big Amazon salaries, I hope you'll join the Patreon and support the show. All right, Dustin. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, sure. This was another great interview on The Business of Business, the interview series on finance fundamentals. And I'm really glad that you joined me for this. I will leave information to contact Daniel and Patrick in the description. A special congratulations to the both of them on their success and those new jobs at Amazon. Really proud of you guys. That's great. Join me next week for another educational topic on Tuesday and another interview on Thursday. Together we'll own that road to financial freedom. And I'm really glad you're joining me for it. I want to hear from you. Have a topic you'd like discussed? A suggestion? You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email, and more. Check out the description for my link tree. I look forward to hearing from you. The show is written and edited by me. Produced and edited by Daniel Rue. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and we really hope you enjoy them.